0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a breakdown of Novak Djokovic's win over Sebastian Korda to win Adelaide. Novak has now won five of his last six events dating back to Wimbledon. He goes into the Australian Open in tremendous form, wins under his belt over Denis Shapovalov in the quarters, Daniil Medvedev in the semis. I have a post-match video up on that. And Korda in the final... But of all of those encounters, uh, this final was by far the best and highest quality, highest drama. And that is uh, a big credit to Sebastian Korda. So as much as we are going to talk about how Novak Djokovic found a way through, how he found an edge in this match and was ultimately the victor, we have to talk about why this match was close. What Korda has done this offseason to what, what I believe... Um, is is make a jump, make apparent leaps in the level that he has the ability to play. And uh, why this was a match that could have gone either way. Djokovic saves a match point in the second set. And my first point on this match relates to that. Because I felt that that match point save came as a result of Novak learning from losing the first set. The way this ended up going was uh, Corda played incredibly well in the first set. I thought it was his highest level. Uh, Just controlled the errors better in the first set than any of the others, in my view. And there were some other things as well that we'll get to. But Seb serves for this set, and he melts. Totally melted serving for the set, made four errors. And then come the tiebreak, it looked like Novak was just begging for that to happen again. Court position was passive. Ground stroke speed was passive. Lots of playing cross-court from Djokovic. Just accepting defensive positions in the rallies. And it was a tight tiebreak. So I will say it almost worked. But in general, it was just... Not uh, the way Djokovic is, is going to play at the very highest level under pressure. And Korda wins this first set tiebreak. There's a sharp contrast to the Djokovic who played that first set tiebreak. Just looked like, again, he was begging for Korda to miss. Like he missed when he served, looked to serve out that first set. A uh, big difference from how he played down the stretch under pressure in that second set. You look at the match point where Novak played a really good backhand down the line, which ended up being a very key shot for him, which he did not hit enough in the first set, uh, followed by a, a backhand approach cross-court that he accelerated on, that he hit violently. And and that pace was was very, very important. And not only that, he did come forward, and he forced Korda to throw up a lob, and then... Uh, very, you know, somewhat poetically, the shot of the match on the Djokovic end of things is an overhead, is a Joko smash. Uh, although maybe you know it, it's not a Joko smash because it was a gorgeous, gorgeous overhead that he snapped down with confidence. So uh, you look at that that match point save, and he really took it to Sebi in a big way, and he accelerated harder and uh, with more confidence. Down that match point. Next point, by the way, he hit another huge backhand cross court. Uh, that set up an easy finish at net. In the second set tie break, he found more offense. And he got a lot of help from Corda. Uh, but he played a much more offensive second set tie break. So at the end of the day, I, I think item number one in this match is Novak finding the courage to go after the ball under pressure. Uh, The courage that that he didn't quite have in the first set. And part of that was, uh, you know, potentially things that he has seen from Korda and saw from Korda. And uh, we'll talk about Korda's mental game a little bit later. There's some interesting things going on with that. So that's the first thing I want to say. And I'll talk about the breaking point in the third set as well. Uh, But I, I thought as far as learning from the first set is concerned, there is also some tactical learning. And... When we talk about the tactical learning from Novak, we have to talk about we have to talk about why Korda gave him so much trouble throughout this match in the first set. And it has to do with Korda's backhand mainly. It's not just Nadal who feasts on righty backhands. Now we love to talk about that with Rafa, of course, because he's a lefty and he hits his cross court forehand into the righty backhand, and his forehand uh has more weight on it than just about anyone um, we've ever seen. But uh, I think it's pretty important to note that Djokovic built his advantage in that ad-court cross-court as well. That's where Novak builds an advantage far more than he does on the deuce court in the cross-court. Now, Novak, as we've discussed, as a baseliner, fully complete, zero holes, strong everywhere. But if I were to pick a side... Against the majority of the field, where does Novak stand taller? It's on the ad side cross court, the righty backhand to backhand, where Novak is simply better than 99%. Uh, Forehand to forehand, it's just not as distinguished. So that is to say, we look at Djokovic's head to heads. We look at some of the guys who have given him a lot of trouble, especially in the last you know, three, five years, I'd say the contemporary era of of Novak, uh, Daniil Medvedev, Alexander Zverev, Roberto Bautista-Agut, these kind of indestructible, solid, consistent backhand sides, these two-handers in particular, it has been difficult for Novak to kind of construct rallies against these guys because he doesn't have that clear ad-court cross-court edge. And then you look at some of the, the matchups that Novak has feasted on. Nine straight wins over Tsitsipas. Absolutely destroying Matteo Berrettini. His 2021 hinged on his ability to beat Matteo Berrettini. The fact that he went into the U.S. Open final with a chance for the calendar slam, three wins over Berrettini. You got Rude. He's crushed Rude time and time again. These weaker backhands, that's a big deal for Novak. So, Sebastian Corda's two-hander is special. It's special because it is as damaging as any two-hander I have ever seen. So precise, so big. Times the down the line beautifully. Finds the cross-court angles um, as well. It is is an absolute gem, an absolute peach. I mean, it is not the... uh, it is not as solid as Medvedev Zverev RBA. No, absolutely not. Uh, he is not as staunch defensively as some of those guys when he's under pressure and he has to hit open stance on the run. Uh, but that's more about athleticism more than anything. Uh, but as far as stepping into a to a backhand, when he gets to when he has time on it, when he gets to get his feet in the right position, And lean into it. And try to be aggressive. That two-hander is as good as anyone. Top aggressively. Offensively, it's top five in the world. I have no hesitation when I say that. So the ad court. You know, backhand to backhand. I'd say, you know, Korda. (laughs) He's just hurting him. He's just hurting Novak. Time and time again. Djokovic was just playing way too many cross-court backhands. Um, especially and and particularly just uh, neutral drive cross-court backhands. So I want to give you some stats here. And I'm talking about the first set when I say that Djokovic was playing too many cross-court backhands and, uh, again, neutral drives. Let me just give you the breakdown, the ground stroke breakdown for Corda. In the first set, Corda hit 92 backhands, 53 forehands. In the second set, Korda hit 39 backhands, 46 forehands. In the third set, Corda hit 20 backhands and 35 forehands. So I think percentage-wise, um, the first set was vast majority Korda's hitting backhands. The second set was close to even, but he's hitting mostly forehands. And in the third set, it shifted even more court is hitting mostly forehands. I thought Djokovic was going up the middle more uh, with his backhand in that third set. Um, And I thought he was going down the line much more with the backhand in the second set. And on the forehand, he continued to, I'd say, find an appropriate balance. But uh, that's significant. That it, the the set that Cordo was was most dominant, the set that he served for, the set that he kind of felt on top of, even though Djokovic pushed it to a tiebreak, Seb was hitting backhands, and then the more forehands he had to hit, um, and the less backhands he had to hit, the less success that he had, uh, because forehand to forehand, in this particular case, I feel like Novak is is better positioned because Djokovic's forehand is far more reliable. Far more consistent than Sebastian Korda's forehand. Korda's got a big forehand. It is damaging. It is scary. He hits some that are just, whew, I mean, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, but it just sprays a lot. It does not have the control that that I think sometimes you would want. So uh, forehand, groundstroke, unforced errors, end up 11 to two per Infosys so 11 unforced errors um on Corda's forehand two unforced errors on Djokovic's forehand so as as Novak just gets Corda's forehand into play more, I just think the match started to turn for him besides Corda's backhand uh the biggest reason this was close the biggest reason Djokovic couldn't pull away um oh you know what let me just let me just paint a, a picture here. Before I move on from kind of the baseline dynamics, where I thought that that Djokovic just didn't let Corda get as comfortable on his backhand side, which was the big problem for him in the first set. Novak started slicing more. So when he did go cross court, Corda's backhand at least mix up pace, spin, and and don't let him get rhythm and and comfort. Um, yes, Djokovic goes down the line more. I I, I already said that. Uh, so ultimately, you. Uh, you have Korda on the run on his forehand more, hitting more forehands from the middle of the court. And when he is hitting backhands, you have to make sure that he's on the run when he does hit backhands. Djokovic is very good at recognizing that. And the the pattern that ended after the first set, for the most part, to Djokovic's credit, was the, we are going to kind of camp in the ad court and play drive backhand to drive backhand. From the back of the court. Novak was able to, okay, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to slice. I'm going to just redirect down the line on my backhand. I'm going to maybe go through the middle on my backhand so that you have to hit a forehand from the middle of the court, which is fine as long as you keep it deep. Um. And that changed the match. That changed the match. The other thing was Corda uh, had a winning dynamic on his second serve. This was a major issue for Djokovic, and look, Novak's service numbers, they were really good for the match. I I never thought that Novak was having all that much trouble holding his serve, but he was having trouble breaking serve. There's no doubt about that. Um, You look at Djokovic's first serve numbers, 85% first serve points won for the match, 68% second serve points won for the match. He was broken once. It was in the first set. Uh, By the way, when Korda broke in the first set, that's a beautiful advan- uh, example. That was the two-hander. That was incredible. Korda hit insane backhands in that first set break of serve. Like, absolutely absurd backhands. So there's your break of serve. Djokovic's remedy, his entity is, is look, we're going to stay away from that shot because it is scary good. Um, So after that, Djokovic held on to his serve, but... Uh, you know, the the match remained very, very tight because Novak was having trouble breaking Seb. Look, Korda, won. Korda has a big first serve now. We'll talk about that. Uh, Korda won 78% of his first serve points. That's a pretty good number for Djokovic. That's fine. I don't think Novak can expect to do all that much better than that. Uh, it's the second serve points won. Korda wins 51% of his second serve points. And, uh, and that, to me... Is, is significant. That's a really good number for Sebastian because he found a winning pattern. Uh, the kick serve to Djokovic's backhand. That, I have said time and time again, is simply Djokovic's weakest return. If there's one return that makes Djokovic look average as a returner, it's this one. Korda was hitting that kick serve. Djokovic, in order to avoid uh, allowing it to get above his shoulders was having to step inside the court and take it early, right? You have a ball that's bouncing up high. You got to try to get it on the rise to try to keep it in your strike zone. If, if you let the ball continue to rise, it's going to kind of get up high on you. So the further, you know, when you're able to move in, that's a, a remedy for that. You take it before it gets too high and, and, and you try to keep it below your shoulders. Um, and in order for, to do that, Djokovic uh, stood inside the baseline to try to return court as kick serve. Um, but when, especially on the ad side, you're pulled off the court and you're pulled inside the court. This is a very disadvantageous position to be when it comes to defending the next ball. What Novak will usually do if he, has, if he has to do this is he'll at least hit the, the return cross-court. At the very least, he'll get it cross-court and uh, to the righty backhand. And that'll give him a chance hopefully to recover uh, because it is difficult for most mere mortals to hit a strong backhand down the line, um, especially if the return has some decent pace and, and quality on it, some depth especially, Corda uh, is so good on that first ball backhand. He's able to uh, do a lot of damage on that first ball backhand very consistently. It goes back to the two-hander. And Djokovic just isn't in any position to defend that next ball because he has to go so far inside the court to avoid it bouncing above his shoulders. Not to mention, he's he just missed too many. He wasn't timing it. He wasn't getting clean strikes on it. Um there was one occasion where he was able to kind of change it up. It was the first point of the second set tiebreak. This was the only point of the match where Novak uh, moved back on court second serve and then just threw up a moon ball, basically, high and heavy one. And now he's in a much better position to start the point. Now he's not inside the court. He's well behind the baseline. He's given himself... Plenty of time to recover to the middle of the court. It does help that he's on the deuce side. And now he starts this point from neutral. Now look, I mean, second serve return, starting from neutral, that's not the the, the greatest thing in the world. Um, but I do think that for uh, for Djokovic, that was better than what it was for, for a lot of the match, which was Novak actually just getting hurt off of court as plus one, even on second serves. Last year, Novak Djokovic won 55%. ...of his second serve return points. Which means opponents, obviously, were winning, uh, on average, uh, 45% of their second serve points. So Corda six percentage points above that mark. And uh, the sample size in a long three-set match was uh, was rather large here. I mean, Corda hit 53 second serves in this match, which is rather significant. Uh, and mind you, he hit four double faults. So when he was landing that kick serve... God, he was just winning at a really, really high rate uh, for a second serve. Before we talk about Sebastian in general, let's talk about Djokovic and what he did in this third set to break quarter serve. 4-5. Novak shows a lot of really awesome stuff here. Um, as, he, as he often does deep into a match in a deciding set with scoreboard pressure applied. It's just what he does. Korda was up 30 love in this game. And, um, Djokovic hits a stretch backhand return that bites low and short. And Corda's midcourt backhand is is shoveled wide. You know, this was, and, and here's a screen grab of that. Look, this is the return that Djokovic was having to hit uh, off of a big first serve by Corda. And, uh, and he, he hit it just absolutely beautifully to put Corda in a very awkward and difficult position. Um, so, great defensive return, amazing agility. 40-15, Djokovic hits a backhand trade cross-court. But what did we talk about? Instead of driving all of these trades, he started using the slice. Get the ball low, um, out of court to strike zone, make him hit from a low contact point, make him lift up off the drive backhand. He got good depth on this backhand slice cross-court. And Korda just doesn't get enough lift on the drive backhand, where he's well behind the baseline. He has to generate his own pace, and the ball is low. And in order to avoid hitting net on on a backhand like that, you're going to have to lift up on the ball um, a lot. And Corda just didn't. He tried to hit the ball uh, too straight with not enough shape, and it hits the middle of the net. So Novak finds an unforced error, but it was really the variety that created that. 40-30, Korda double faults. Now we go to Deuce. At Deuce, Sebi teed off on three straight forehands. Big plus one forehand. Two huge forehands behind it. And Djokovic was incredible defensively. But as soon as Korda came forward, Novak tosses up this really, really high defensive lob. Um... And Corda has a baseline overhead. It's deuce four five. Here's a shot that Corda has all day to think about. It's nighttime under the lights. Um, and this Adelaide Court, there's a white canopy above it. I don't know how hard it is to track a ball that's hit up that high in the air when you're trying to trying to look at it, but there's a chance that it's kind of difficult at nighttime with those kind of white artificial lights attached to the ceiling. You're looking up and Novak has just, you know, you've just won the point three times here. Again, Korda hit three great forehands and Novak with his speed, agility, defensive skills is still in this point. And now Korda has to hit a baseline overhead. He mistimed the overhead and hit it again in the middle of the net. Uh, This kind of in itself is a bad miss but at the same time you really tip your cap to Novak like that's what great defense is that's what it is add out good trading in this point um Djokovic gets Korda on the move on his forehand side and Korda hits a fo- forehand cross court trade that goes long so we we have a lot of our themes here and we'll kind of end the the match analysis on this excuse me a lot of his th- a lot of the themes we have um, well, the theme on the last point is Corda's forehand reliability. It's not the same as Djokovic's forehand reliability. And that is why that cross-court forehand-forehand is going to go Djokovic's way more often than not. It's not because Corda's forehand is, uh, is not as big as Novak's. It's not that he's overpowered in that cross-court. It's just not as reliable. All right, and then we have... Um, Agility and defense coming into play at 30-love with the return. At deuce with uh, with the defensive lob and, and the defense before then. Uh, we have a double fault in there. Which was atypical. Um, especially because Korda's second serve was actually working really well. The kick serve. Although, you know, you do it over and over and over and over again. It did start to feel like Djokovic was starting to just get the hang of it. and And play some better returns in general. And then at 40-15... We have uh, the incorporation of the backhand slice, which Novak did a lot more after that first set where he realized, I just cannot let Korda get comfortable with his two-hander. So there you have it. Djokovic breaks serve in the third set. Boom, 6-4. And that is the match. Let's talk about Sebi. Let's talk about Sebi. Um, I'm sold on Korda as a top 20 player this season. And to understand... Why I was so um, I was so happy to see his level and the way he was playing in this match is to understand what I thought the problem with Sebastian Corda was the last two years. So let me first paint the picture of what the problem was, and then we'll get to the solution. Corda is not that quick; he's not a speedster. So he needs to be a dominant offensive player. And he had the big forehand and he had the big backhand in order to be that dominant offensive player, that easy, smooth power and that tremendous timing. He had all that. All right, cool. Here's the problem his serve was middleweight. In order to be a dominant offensive player, you have to create opportunities for yourself with your first serve. And that was a middleweight serve. And it didn't make much sense. Here's a guy, six foot five, good technique. But his first serve is 115 miles per hour. What's going on here? Technique looks good. Six foot five. Why is it 115 miles per hour? That's just not big enough. It's not going to... That is not going to work. You know, the quickness isn't there. Got to be dominant offensively in order to be a top player. And you're serving 115. Something's wrong with that picture. So something had to change there. Um, And... In this match against novak in this final he averaged 123 miles per hour on his first serve he's clearly serving bigger what happened he bulked up he got big he got strong that's what happened there might have been a technical change it something looked a little different to me i couldn't put my finger on it and i I haven't put it side to side which i would have to do but at the end of the day i think he got way bigger way stronger and that's probably where your 10 miles per hour came from. Uh, maybe there was a mindset shift where he got more aggressive mentally and uh, you know, flattened out and started to kind of trust himself to go as big as he could. Uh, that could be part of it. But at the end of the day, he clearly bulked up in both the lower body and the upper body. I would estimate he's 10 pounds heavier after this offseason. And the serve is big suddenly. And this is what we see. The offseason is where we see a player like Sebastian Corda. Make that jump, that physical leap that we saw, you know, to a more extreme sense. We saw that with Carlos Alcaraz, um, where, where Alcaraz obviously bulked up last offseason. And it it made a big difference for him. Um, Alcaraz was a lot bigger than Corda before that offseason, by the way. Um, so, you know, Corda is never going to look like Carlitos. It's never, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, I'll eat my shirt if it does. Uh, but he's got some, some meat on the bones now. And before, he didn't. And by the way, he told Alex Gruskin on, um, I think, the Cracked Interviews podcast that until this year, he had so many injuries and joint issues that he he had never lifted weights in his life. So he just started strength training last year. All right. Sounds about right. You know, that's a problem. That's why you saw Sebastian Corda that just couldn't really crack that top 30 level because you're you're too weak. You're not you're not big enough and strong enough to do that. Um, he also had major durability issues. Korda always seemed to get banged up, nicked up. Every time he went deep in a tournament, his body would break down as tournaments progressed. So those were my big issues, the serve and the durability. And obviously getting stronger is going to remedy both of those things. So uh, I think this has the look of that career-shifting off-season for Seb. And that's why I'm sold that he's a top-20 player this season because the the ball-striking talent is obviously and clearly there. Seb's mental game, though, is a, is now a talking point, I would say. Uh, I'm not too negative about him losing this match, despite him holding match points. If, if all of them looked like the first set, serving out the first set, if he looked like that again, um, then I would probably come down a little bit harder on him when it comes to like, all right, Kind of this was kind of a choke job. Nadal and Indian Wells was a choke job, and it's not a word I, I toss around lightly. You know, it means that there is a dramatic decline in level due to the scoreboard pressure. To me, that's that's the definition of, of what a choke is. And and this really wasn't that. I know we had a match point, but Djokovic played the match point really, really well. Uh Korda didn't have a, a huge lead at any point in this match. Um but I do think the second set tiebreak, there were, there were too many mistakes. There were too many needless mistakes. Um, and I think he gets very tense. I think he gets tense as heck. And everybody under pressure has different kinds of things that happen to them. Some players make very poor decisions. Some players get very passive. And they're afraid to play their game. Go after the ball. Korda, that's not the case. Korda continues to go for his shots. He continues to make, I think, sound decisions, but he just misses wildly. Something about the way, you know, when his when there's tension in his arm, he'll just he'll just spray. He'll just spray. Plain and simple. There's also some positives, though. He's calm, he's even keeled, and he's professional. So when it comes to Sebi's mental game, Calling it good or bad just doesn't do do enough to describe it. Let's talk about how Korda regrouped in that first set after playing an awful 5-4 uh, service game. Uh, let's talk about how he regrouped. Let's talk about how he stayed level. How he focused on the future. He didn't let it linger. And then played a good first set tiebreak, right? So there's a lot of good parts to Korda. Again, calm, even-keeled, professional. The negative, nerve management-wise, yeah, he gets very tense. And if I'm playing Corda, and we're in a tight situation, I'm playing that forehand and I'm expecting him to make some mistakes on it. I will end on the support for Djokovic in Adelaide. That was a storyline. And then I will wrap things up. Uh, look, all I have to say is um, is this about the Adelaide support? No surprise, no surprise. Uh, if you are a Novak Djokovic fan in Australia, or if you are a Novak Djokovic fan in uh, you know in the in the southern hemisphere, uh, anywhere near Australia, you know, in the whatever it be, right? You are just that much more motivated to support Novak. The passion, the pro Djokovic passion is going to far outweigh whatever the kind of casual resentment that some Australians maybe could have harbored from what happened a year ago, maybe. Uh, But in general, I think those people have, uh, have probably moved on. And far, far, far more significant and more present is going to be the desire for Djokovic fans in Australia uh, to show him extra support after what happened last year. Extra. Not that Novak doesn't usually have plenty of fans in the crowd, whether it be, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020, right? Uh, and by the way, Australia is generally a pretty positive place for Djokovic when it comes to the crowds. Uh, we saw that at you know ATP Cup, for example, in twenty twenty. You look at that match against Medvedev; it's one of the the electric pro Djokovic environments that I can remember. So not that we don't see that generally, but that is going to be piped up, you know, times three. After what happened last year, the idea that Djokovic is going to get some sort of mixed reception, I think, is inaccurate. Uh, Let's see, because I know that Adelaide in South Australia is not the same place as Melbourne. I understand we're talking about different cities here, uh, but I would expect more of the same in Melbourne where, again, if you are a Djokovic fan and you want to show him support, you understand how much that means to him coming back to Australia, given the circumstances. And man, uh, you want to support the guy and let him feel... Your warm welcome. Let him feel your support. And that support is uh, is going to be very much appreciated by Novak. Um, again, after what happened last year. That's all I got on this. Um, oh, quick, quick word on... I should have teased this at the beginning. United States, congratulations on the uh, United Cup victory. Look, for the U.S., um, by far the most complete team in the competition. The only team with four top 20 players. Uh, Pagula Keys, Tiafo, Fritz was the squad. And I think especially for the men, especially for Fritz and Tiafo, uh, there is a lot of pressure on American men to live up to the history. Yes, maybe that is you know, starting to wear off a little bit, but a lot of expectation there for American men. And this is one of those feel good moments, I think for Fritz and Tiafo where they're representing the country and they're winning the inaugural edition of an international team competition. And I, I just think it's, uh, it's got to be a good feeling because, look, the ghost of Connors, McEnroe, Agassi, Sampras, Courier, Chang, uh, you know, the ghost of these guys, <laughs> they live on to haunt these last two, these last couple generations of American men they do. And this is a good um kind of a good indication. That look, you guys you guys aren't so bad. You're doing well. You're in a good place and American tennis at the moment is actually really really healthy, which I fully believe it is. Um but I think the the next kind of decade or so, given the the youth and the the number of of strong Americans that exist in the top 50 of the rankings on both the men's side and the women's side um, is going to kind of lead to what I think is going to be a good period in American tennis. Um, But this was also significant. You know, you look at Davis Cup titles, the Americans, uh, they've won it just once since 96. That was in 2007. The women have won it. uh, I'm sorry. I think the, I think I have that backwards. I think the men, no, no. I think the men won it in 2007. Uh, The women have won it also just once in the last uh, century, since 2000. I think they won it in 2000, and since then, uh, they've won it just once. So it's been few and far between when it comes to Americans winning Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, uh, but the first United Cup goes to the U.S. emphatically because that was the best team and none of the ties were particularly close. Now, I am finished for Monday Match Analysis. Hope you enjoyed Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.